I hope this podcast finds you healthy and safe wherever it is you are in the world right now. What a difference a couple of weeks makes. It's really quite striking to be confronted with the full realization that we're living through history and that life can change in what seemed like an instant. Of course, I'm talking about the coronavirus or COVID-19 And today I'm talking to Dr. Bruce Bernard. Dr. Bruce Bernard is a 30-year veteran of the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, a.k.a. the CDC. He's also the father of one of our dearest friends, Claire Bernard, from Marin County. And I've known Bruce very loosely just through our relationship with Claire and figured I would ask him to come on and chat with us today to get his perspective on this disease, what we can do, and what makes this a really unique point in history. And he provides us with lots of interesting perspective, I think. Uh, Bruce, again, as I said, worked in the CDC for 30 years. He worked on things like the Ebola virus, the bird flu, H1N1, the West Nile virus, SARS, the World Trade Center bombings and Zika virus, and thus has lots of relevant experience to what we're going through now. So I really encourage you to listen to this one and take it to heart and listen to the end because I also have a fun little uh, treat for you and the second iteration of Deb's Poetry Corner in which my mother-in-law, Deborah Buchanan, will share one of her poems and a little bit of commentary as to why it's relevant to our times. So, thank you guys for listening. Without further delay, Dr. Bruce Bernard. Okay, I'm here with Dr. slash Captain Bruce Bernard. Bruce is a uh, longtime veteran of government service in the CDC and somebody who is highly relevant to talk to given the circumstances in the U.S. and around the world right now. So, Dr. Bernard, thank you for talking to me today. Yes, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for asking. So, you were just kind of explaining it to me uh, before we started recording, but uh, should I address you as Dr. Bernard or Captain Bernard? Well, um, I'm retired now from the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, and you may have seen the Surgeon General speaking, yep. and he was my boss. Mm-hmm. So we're we are the Commission Corps of the Public Health Service is about six thousand health um, experts, and they're at the Centers for Disease Control. They're at National Institutes of Health. They're at Indian Health Service hospitals, and they serve in places around the country and the world, um, which are in need of uh, medical care. We yeah. also have engineers, industrial hygienists, dentists, etc. So you serve different missions. That's um, really interesting to see. And I was curious about the Surgeon General's outfit. That that makes a lot of sense now with your uh, explanation. But 
you and I know each other through your wonderful daughter, who is one of our uh, greatest friends in the world, Claire Bernard. Uh, shout out to Claire and Levi in Fairfax, California. And she connected us, and I'm really happy you were willing to sit down and chat with us about what's going on right now. But for the listeners, can you just give a, a brief summary of your career in government and at the CDC? Sure. Uh, Dylan, I spent about 30 years at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention dealing with both toxic, toxic and infectious disease outbreaks. This was on the ground in trenches in countries around the world. And our team developed and provided guidance to protect healthcare workers and other workers, no matter what they were doing, in many, many responses, included including large national and international crises. I was involved in the World Trade Center bombing and um, the results of that, anthrax attacks, hurricanes, earthquakes, man-made and natural disasters. But I think more importantly for this corona outbreak, I was also involved in SARS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus, bird flu, H1N1 flu, Ebola. And you, you, I think, know uh, through Claire some of the work we did. We, I helped set up a hospital in Liberia and was responsible for the health and safety of our 75-member hospital staff. And so this uh, clues me in on what they're going through because, as you know, they, they all look like they're responding to Ebola, dressed in all their gear, personal protection, etc. Lastly, I was involved in the Zika virus. And also, I was involved in the development of CDC's Emergency Responder Health Monitoring and Surveillance Program for emergency responders. And I worked closely with the U.S. National Response Team, federal agencies, state health departments, labor unions, volunteer emergency responder groups. And I was also involved in the State Department's emergency tabletop exercises under Bush and Obama. Yeah. Well, it's amazing with 30-year experience and um, you know a wealth of, of knowledge uh, that you've agreed to come on what is like a sports and, and running podcast. So really appreciate you sharing your uh, multi-decade experience with us here. And I think people will really appreciate it. But very generally, um, you know, to speak about what's happening currently, in layman's terms, how would you describe the coronavirus to those of us who haven't spent decades battling these things around the world? Well, this is an interesting virus because it's a novel virus. It's never been recognized before in humans until, I think, December 31st, 2019 in China. And it's a coronavirus. There's several types of coronaviruses. Most people have had general head colds, those are coronaviruses. And then the, the more dangerous ones that we've dealt with, SARS and MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus. And these viruses are named for their shape. It looks like a round crown and it has spikes. And I'm going to go through mm -hmm. the spikes later on. Now, it was passed, they think, from humans from infected forest bats and transferred through maybe an intermediate animal. It's not sure at this point what it was. They've been looking at DNA 
They think maybe snakes. Today there was something, whether yes or no, was it a pangolin? Yeah. Looks like an armadillo. And then it went to people, and it may have just gone from bats to people. Now they traced it from the live animal market in Wuhan, China, mm -hmm. which is the epicenter of the outbreak. And they think it mutated, so it more readily attaches to human cells and mostly in the respiratory system, your nose, throat, down into your lungs. And it spreads from one person to another through large and small respiratory droplets. When you sneeze or cough, the mm -hmm. virus rides on those droplets. They think that um, from an infected person, uh, it spreads to from an infected person to about two and a half people. So then once those two and a half people get it, then they spread it through two and a half people. So when you look at that math, I mean, it really tells you how quickly it could spread over a nation and then from country to country if there are people traveling. Yeah. So it, it sounds like at a base level, it does become kind of a math problem. And I wanted to get into this a little bit later, but it, since you just mentioned it, you know, the, the spread to two and a half people, of course, then it is, will naturally just spread exponentially in a way that gets out of control quickly. So the reason that we all find ourselves social distancing and, and isolating ourselves is so that we infect less than one people because that would is the only way to then make the math go in the opposite direction. Am I right? And can you explain yeah. that? that exponential math equation and how you guys think about it at the CDC? Well, I think uh, just for your audience, um, you can take out a piece of paper and do the one person, two people, four people, eight people, 16 people, and just keep going. Yeah. And it, it, this virus passes pretty quickly. And you mentioned the social distancing, and I think from the outset, we should talk about just the six feet apart rule. Mm -hmm. I said it's spread through droplets, and the reason why we pick six feet, it's found that it's far enough so that droplets, large and small, from people coughing or breathing on you, cannot be transferred from one person to another. Interesting. Well, that's that's good to know. So... Also, kind of generally speaking, before we get into more details, how do you view just the, the global situation right now? Like, not only within the U.S., but how this is moving around the world. What should we be looking for in a general sense over the next, say, one to two months? You know, if you've been listening to the news and... Um, television and to the experts, especially Dr. Tony Fauci from NIH, who actually was in the Commission Corps when he was younger. Um, it's so hard to predict at this point in time. We don't know what the future will bring. And one of the things that we're looking at is China, South Korea, Singapore, where they've made we think great steps in being able to isolate their communities and their rates 
and number of deaths have gone down precipitously. You know, they said today on the news, they're looking perhaps for a second wave of cases. Yeah. And we don't know. I think one of the questions that's been bandered around is, bandied around, um, that uh, we don't know how long social distancing will be required. Yeah. Because it looks like if you look at the epidemic curve, which means how many people have been infected, how many people will be infected over the next couple of weeks. We're not sure where we are on that curve, but we believe it's still very early in both diagnosing and being able to figure out who has the disease and who doesn't have the disease. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that maybe in Asia they're a little bit, they're obviously later in the curve or in the development of the disease, but that they are expecting a potential second wave and we are in the very early stages of what would be the first wave here in the U.S. I think right? you, you put it exactly right. Okay. So getting into a little bit more detail, you sort of mentioned that the virus started in Wuhan, a city of 11 million people in China, and then sort of spread from there. Um, and am I right in thinking that the spread then was from individuals traveling from Wuhan to other places around the world, like it's spread via infected humans who are then traveling. Is that right? That is correct. And what's interesting is um, they were able to identify this, what they believe is the epicenter. And there's been some controversy of what the origin of the virus is. They've been looking at the DNA and right now it looks like, you know, there's some I'm just introducing this early. There's been some concern that this may have been a manufactured virus, but when those DNA specialists and virologists look at this virus, they don't see the sequencing pattern that is any way abnormal to regular viruses that are spread through the population. So they believe that, um, there's no indication to tell at this point that this would be a manufactured virus. They think it's just a normal virus going through the population. So what you're saying, I, I think I know what you're referring to in that on the internet, there's been talk in certain corners that maybe there was some lab in China that was working on infectious disease and this had been sort of like synthetically manufactured, uh, but you're, you're saying that actually it does look like it is animal born and a, and a more natural disease. Is that what, you're mean, what you mean? Yes. Okay. That is what I, I'm, I'm saying that the experts so far have said that, that they think it's, you know, scientists never say 100%. Yeah. But they're saying it's very highly improbable that this was anything but a natural occurrence. And I yeah. think you, you mentioned, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but um, about the travel and yep. how this came about and spread so quickly. You know, we're in the age that 
um, you know, they are always comparing it to the 1918 um, pandemic of a virus that spread after World War One. Yeah. And there's so much more travel these days. And as you may know, initially, one of the criteria for getting tested in the United States was have you traveled to Wuhan, China? Mm-hmm. Have you traveled anywhere in China? And now they've dropped the travel question yeah. totally. Just because it's such an interconnected, globalized world at this point, and travel is right. so ubiquitous, as you say. Exactly. So, you know, being that we do live in that world, this does seem to have an unprecedented kind of feeling to it, certainly in my lifetime. How, how does this compare to other problems you've worked on in the course of your 30-year career? And and why is it spreading so quickly? Well, I think that's a good question. And and I'll I'll answer this in a couple of ways. This virus is spreading so easily because it can present as an infectious disease in people with little to no symptoms. Okay. So that that's why we're doing social distancing with our friends, our neighbors, people who don't appear ill at all or not coughing because we believe that this virus can be spread people who look and feel completely normal. Mm-hmm. So that's been a problem. This was not true in SARS the virus was really spread once people were already sick, had a severe cough and fever. However, this coronavirus, COVID-19, is spread when people are asymptomatic. Wow. So when you look at the microbiology of this and you look at the virus itself, I mentioned that the coronavirus is round and has these specialized spikes on its surfaces. Mm -hmm. And these spikes allow it to bind at least 10 times more tightly to our human body cells than its sister virus, SARS. I'm going to repeat that, 10 times more tightly. And there are two enzymes they found in human bodies that allow this to happen. First is called furin, F-U-R-I-N. And this is found in the respiratory system or the lungs, the small intestines, and the liver. So many human organs. And that means that the virus can potentially attack several organs at once. And this isn't the same with, say, just the flu virus that tends to just locate in your respiratory system. Wow. There's another protein besides furin, another enzyme, um, which is called ACE2, angiotensin-converting enzyme. So ACE2 binds to the spikes as well and allows the virus to get in. And this also has been found to be 10 times more efficient in introducing the virus in human cells than other viruses we know. So are you saying then, Bruce, in layman's terms again, that these these spikes, as you call them, and these enzymes uh, not only make it more uh, kind of 
dangerous or damaging to the human body, but they're all, it also makes it more contagious. Is that right? Yes. Okay. It makes it so more it's easier contagious. to contract. And then once you've contracted it, it becomes more damaging. So it's kind it, of a, it may or may not be more damaging. It, okay. it makes it, it, it really answers the question of why does COVID-19 spread so easily? Yeah. Because of these two enzymes they found along mm -hmm. with the spikes on the virus. Right. And so in mentioning like the bird flu, which has kind of an astronomical uh, mortality rate attached to it, um, whereas at this point, from what we know with the coronavirus, it's, you know, in the single digits in terms of percentage of people who contract the virus will ultimately perish as a result. So what makes this virus so problematic as, or like in comparison to things like the bird flu, which was much more deadly? Is it just that it is, it's spread asymptomatically, like you said, and therefore is more difficult to control and contain? Um, what else about well, it makes it so problematic compared to the other things that I've seen in my lifetime? So I'm glad you pointed that out because when you look at SARS and MERS and the Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus, which is a coronavirus as well, the mortality is about a third of people who get it. This right. one, the mortality is about, they think it's a little early to really give it a number, but you know, about 2%. Mm -hmm. The thing about this is, is an answer to what you have said before. It's so easily spread that more and more people will get this. And with more and more people get this, more people who have comorbid conditions, meaning they have other illnesses like hypertension, diabetes, they're immunocompromised, will get it as well. Mm -hmm. And they're more likely to have severe cases and more likely to die. So yeah. if you have more people getting it, more old people, more sick people will also get it and they'll be at risk for becoming more severely ill and possibly dying. Interesting. Yeah. And so as you said, 30 percent or thereabouts of people die from the bird flu we think about what about two percent die of of the coronavirus and so therefore you know it's the um the contagious the, the more contagious aspect of it and the fact that like you said people with the bird flu will be showing symptoms at the point at which they're contagious whereas it's it's not the same with the coronavirus that makes it so scary. So the other thing that people have kind of been comparing this to is just the regular seasonal flu. And we know, we all know now that the flu kills thousands of people a year worldwide. Um, and, you know, as a result, at least some people kind of view the coronavirus as, as sort of no big deal. How should we be thinking about this novel coronavirus in relationship to the regular seasonal flu? Well, the regular seasonal flu, as you said, it actually killed um, about a million people worldwide. It, in the United States, it kills about, probably about 
30 to 67,000 people a year. However, it's an influenza virus and we do have a method and a vaccine for the flu. So one of the things I always urge people to do is get your flu vaccine. Yeah. Because if you get your flu vaccine, even though it's not usually a hundred percent match, it reduces both the number of days you're sick, the severity of your illness, the number of people dying who've had the flu vaccine. In the coronavirus, we don't have any treatment or any vaccine at this time. And so that puts people more at risk. The, the regular influenza virus um, is not spread as easily as well. So we think that um, this is really, this novel virus is very serious. And I know in my lifetime, and I'm probably twice as old as you are, um, have never experienced this kind of response to a flu worldwide. And um, we're seeing that taking actions such as social distancing, staying home, uh, making sure that you uh, take measures to clean things uh, is really working in those countries where um, they've been able to put them in place, like South Korea, yeah. um, Singapore, et cetera. Yeah. Interesting. So there are actually two different types of viruses. You said, so the flu is obviously an influenza virus, whereas the COVID-19 is a coronavirus. Can you, what's the difference between the two? I mean, is it easy to explain that to those of us who, who aren't doctors and scientists? Well, there's just so many, there's about a million viruses out there. I hate to tell you, okay. but um, the, uh, they're, they're different shapes. Some are DNA viruses, some are RNA viruses. Some, uh, you know, they have different DNA structures, just like different plants and animals really is, mm -hmm. is what I could say. Um, you know, we can categorize plants, but we all know that there are millions types of trees, flowers, bushes. Yeah. There's the same with viruses and just, you know, offhand, you mentioned bird flu, Spanish flu, Ebola, SARS, polio, smallpox, measles, mm. influenza. These are all different types of viruses. Mm. And some of them, like measles, mumps, rubella, we've had um, vaccines already. Influenza, we have a vaccine that's made every year because the virus is able to change its DNA um, through mutations. And one of the things I think people are worried about is, will the coronavirus be able to change? And are we going mm -hmm. to see a resurgence of different coronaviruses in the future um, that are related to COVID-19? Yikes, that's a scary proposition. Um, so going back to what we were talking about with China, do you have any reason to question the real, the reliability of, of that data? Because when, when I look at the numbers, and of course, I am not educated on, on any of this stuff, but 
it seems like for a country so densely populated and in a city so densely populated like Wuhan, the number of people who are infected and ultimately the total number of people who have died in China is actually relatively low in comparison to what's going on in some of the Western European countries like Italy and Spain. Do you, is there any reason to question that, that Chinese data? And, and if not, what do you attribute their, their relatively low numbers to in relationship to Italy and, and Spain? You know, it's very hard for me to figure out what the exact numbers that we're getting from China, are they reliable, um, valid, accurate? Because um, I think China has a whole different political system than we do. Um, it's very hard to know uh, locally here in the United States what the real numbers are. Because in China, like here, although they had more testing, not everyone gets tested, not everyone has symptoms. So it's very hard to kind of catch a flaming ball to mm -hmm. figure out what the real numbers are. Um, China, Singapore, Japan, South Korea, all have more homogenous cultures than the United States and Europe. Mm -hmm. And so they also have, um, I think, uh, more data on their uh, population than yeah. we do in the Western countries. And they were able to, for example, in Singapore and South Korea, they knew exactly who had the coronavirus, who their contacts were, you know, what they were doing, how many days they had it, and it was all electronic. We don't have that capability in our healthcare system, um, in the way that we follow our population. So it's very difficult to, to know for figure sure. out what's going on. So the cultural and political differences, of course, uh, those countries that you mentioned, you know, yeah, being a little bit more homogenous, a little bit more open to maybe government tracking and tracing of contacts than us in the in the Western world and specifically in the U.S. who think of ourselves as highly independent and and I guess adverse to government intervention and and surveillance may ultimately leave us maybe a little bit more vulnerable than those populations in, in Asia. Is that accurate or is that sort of the gist of what you're saying? I, I think that is kind of, that is the gist that I'm mm -hmm. saying. Interesting. Yes, that, that it's, it's more difficult just, you know, we, you know, when one of our state's motto is don't tread on me and yeah. don't, you know, <laughs> yeah. don't, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a whole different atmosphere in the United States. Well, interesting. Well, it'll be, I guess, uh, worthwhile monitoring how, how this ultimately impacts uh, that feeling of independence and stuff. 
here in our country. Um, so kind of moving on from that, we're still early in our understanding of the virus, as you've said a couple of times, but there seems to be kind of a range in how people are responding. So for some people, as you say, they show almost no symptoms. It's no big deal whatsoever. And for some people, it becomes deadly. So do we know anything about what separates those who respond positively versus those who uh, ultimately die as a consequence of contracting this virus? Is it only the people who have the, the comorbidities, as I think you said, that are, are most at risk? How should we be thinking about that? Well, I think, um, you know, I guess I could divide it up into the three groups, those who have no symptoms but pass it on to other people. And generally, with this virus, we find that very young people and younger people um, haven't been as sick with this virus as those older people who are over 60 years. And especially when you look at the data of who's been hospitalized, it's those who are over 60 years, those with underlying illness, and I mentioned before, high blood pressure, diabetes, autoimmune problems, cancers. And then those who have died in the US, um, I think CDC put out their morbidity and mortality report where they showed in the, in the United States that those who were dying were average age of 85 with other underlying conditions. So it's really the very old who are dying and the old over 60 years who are being hospitalized. Probably about 80% or up to 85 to 87 of people who get this will just experience a flu-like illness where they have cough, fever, they feel achy and it lasts for five to seven to 10 days, and then they improve. But we think they may be still infectious until about 14 days, and that's why the quarantining of people amounts to a period of 14 days. Interesting. Yeah, personally, we returned from a trip in Europe 14 days ago today, and this was, we returned and arrived back here in Portland, um, before the social distancing and uh, sort of isolation was kind of uh, mandated or at least suggested by um, the governor here in Oregon. And so we've sort of self-isolated uh, for the last 14 days as a result of our uh, travel recently. And uh, it seems that uh, luckily, you know, none of us are, are showing any symptoms. And we were traveling with Harmony's mother, who's in her 70s. And uh, luckily, you know, we're all feeling healthy and uh, asymptomatic. But we sort of took the precautionary measure to, um, to sort of self-isolate prior to uh, that being sort of dictated by uh, our governor here. Do you think that was the right thing to do as a result of just being in places like Spain. Um, Absolutely. And um, also you were on a you know, small metal tube flying yeah. across the ocean. And we also, um, uh, Maggie, my wife and I went with uh, 
10 friends to Colorado skiing. And um, they sh we were lucky enough that they shut down the slopes a day after we left. Mm -hmm. but we've also been self-quarantining for that long. Yeah. Well, so this sort of gets into what I want to talk about next, which is our response as a country and as a culture to this virus. Um, what is your opinion as somebody who is now retired, but who spent 30 years working on these problems as to what the country should do? Like if you were president or in charge of the CDC, what do you think the, the best response is for us to take as a country? Like, is it a total nationwide shutdown like we've seen elsewhere? Is it just the social distancing combined with the testing and tracing? Um, what do you think is the best way forward here if you were in charge? Well, I, I tend to side with... Um when I see the president speaking with his medical advisors, I think sometimes um, there are two messages there. You hear from the president who wants to open up the country, get things moving, and all of his uh, medical advisors keep telling him it's too early. We need to continue to have social distancing, not open up. Um, bars, restaurants, hairdressing salons, mm -hmm. um, other places, because we're too early into the curve and we want to protect people. And I don't think we've ever seen this dichotomy before where public health has been given free reign to allow them to really push public health measures to protect most vulnerable people in society, the those over 60, those with comorbid conditions, and um, the very old. One of the things that I would strongly urge your uh, listeners to do is to, um, there's the, uh, I'm blocking the American Defense Act. Um, I have to figure out. The Defense Production Act? Yes, the yep. De Defense Production Act that needs to be in place. We, I'm very concerned about healthcare workers yep. um, and have been in my 30-year career, but it's also very close to me because I have a daughter working in a major hospital in the mm -hmm. country um, who has told me that they're rationing um, N95 face respirators mm -hmm. that protect workers who have to be around these patients hours and hours every day. And they're getting more and more COVID patients in the hospital, putting these healthcare workers at risk. They're rationing gloves, gowns, and respirators, and face shields, all needed to protect workers. And so I think your listeners need to contact their local state governors, the, um, their politicians in um, D.C. Congress yeah. Yes, Congress people to make sure that um, we put the, the um, American Production 
I already for, the defense uh, production. Yeah, the, the defense, defense production act. I know. Yeah. Sorry, it's okay. The I've been reading the news act. like crazy. So, well, I've been sending out a million. Yeah. I've been sending out a million <laughs> things, but I think uh, you know um, that that needs to be enacted. And healthcare facilities, everyone who's dealing with patients, everybody who's cleaning their rooms, needs to be given proper equipment to do their jobs so they're not at risk because if healthcare workers become ill, who's going to take care of the patients Yeah, and we're all going to be stuck. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. And that's something I wanted to ask you about later of things that we can do here with our free time that it seems everybody is, has in surplus right now um, to sort of help. So I'll flag that for the people who will listen to this to yeah do do what Bruce says and get in touch with um, your Congress people, your state and local government to um, put pressure on them to help those that are on the front line. But Bruce did sort of hold your feet to the fire a little bit in in going back to the the national response. Like, do you do you think it's necessary for us to have like a nationwide shutdown because? I was listening to a TED interview with Bill Gates yesterday, and he, you know, of course, is a is a software expert, but seems to be very well versed in this stuff through his, you know, philanthropic endeavors with the, with his foundation. And at least my interpretation of what he was saying was that we need like a six to 10 week nationwide shutdown at this point that we've missed our opportunity to contain this virus. And so it's going to take very intense isolation, uh, much more, um, I guess, mandatory distancing from the federal government on a nationwide scale to, to actually contain this virus at this point. Do you, do you agree with that? Or can we take that sort of like South Korea model where we try and test everybody and then trace their contacts? Like what, what do you think is the best way forward? Well, right now I don't think we can test everybody and trace their contacts. This morning on uh, NPR, I heard that, um, they don't have enough kits and they don't have enough reagents and we're kind of uh, at a standstill to produce more testing uh, methods at this point. And they're, I think it's a plea to do more, yeah. not that we're, we're stuck. But I think a national shutdown is probably needed, looking at the way that this virus and the number of people who are dying and who are infected, you know, we just passed half a million cases this mm -hmm. morning. If you look at the Johns Hopkins uh, website map, which is a very good resource, mm -hmm. and the U.S. just passed China in the number of cases. So, you know, we don't want to be number one in yeah. coronavirus, but here we are. And so... We need to take drastic actions. And I think Bill Gates um, comes from um, a, 
a line of authority or he's he's around some of the smartest people in the world because of his foundation mm -hmm. and i think his um words uh really speak to what we need to do in the world mm -hmm. our governor of, of ohio mike dewine um who has been one of the leaders to in the nation dealing with his state to um, isolate people, shut things down, to decrease the number of cases in the state of Ohio, where I'm located, um, says with his experts that he, he believes and his experts believe that the peak of coronavirus isn't going to be till the first week in May, mm -hmm. which is about six weeks. Yeah. Wow, I mean, that's really sobering, you know, for those of us who are already getting a little bit stir crazy. That's right. And self isolating for, you know, a couple of weeks at this point uh, to think that these are just the, the early innings of, of this uh, ultimate long fight with the virus. Um, so, is it true that there was some kind of office or agency? that usually would be responsible for dealing with pande pandemics like this that was recently eliminated. Um, I think I remember reading that in the news. Uh, is that true? And, and do you, could you tell us more about what that group would have done if they were in place? Well, one of the things that the, the um, that group did was uh, they were supposed to be in charge of the pandemic response. And I think it was under Bolton that he was trimming um, the agencies and he went ahead and trimmed the pandemic response group. And so one of the things that uh, they were responsible, and I think that they did, is they did an emergency tabletop exercise and they showed that we were not well prepared for a pandemic mm -hmm. that I know I was involved in from 2011 to 2013. We, there's a website called um, pandemic.gov that we produced over 1100 different uh, documents on how to deal with a pandemic. And that was under Obama. And what we did was uh, we chose transportation, businesses, healthcare, homes, different um, small uh, and large businesses, airlines industries, about what they could do and what the plan was that they should pick up for the pandemic. Unfortunately, uh, in many areas of our country, there wasn't enough push. People didn't really take it seriously. And now I believe that um, most uh, businesses and agencies uh, really would have liked to have prepared. Mm -hmm. We didn't have national leadership. And I think without that, we have suffered under this pandemic. Mm -hmm. As you know, under this administration, there are many um, un, there are many vacancies and unfilled positions in many of the agencies in 
um, uh, the government that might have been able to sit at the table and respond well. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously this is kind of an unprecedented thing, but yeah, it would be really nice to you know, feel that leadership in a moment of crisis like this and uh, you know, to know that there, there was a group in place that could have sounded the alarm bells that, that is not in place now is worrying and, and sad for uh, those of us who um, have been tracking this closely. But, you know, going back to what I w was asking you about a second ago, when it comes to testing, the, you know, you said we just don't have the supply of tests right now. But in the hypothetical world that we did, in the imaginary situation where there was unlimited amounts of testing. Am I right to think that we could sort of execute this successfully in a South Korea type way where we just would test everybody who, who you know, wanted it effectively or maybe even mandate that everybody take it? And then for those who test positive, we just put them on an aggressive uh, isolation along with the people that they've had interactions with, and this would go away quickly. Is that correct? And is it correct for me to then jump to the assumption that because we don't have enough tests, that's why we all are suffering in our self-quarantine and social physical distancing? Is that right? Like, if is the testing the key at this point, and the fact that we don't have it really exacerbating the problem? Well, I, you know, I think it's uh, probably more complex in a way because of our society. But let's you say in a hypothetical world, mm -hmm. if if we could test everybody, we could. You know, that's more than 272 million tests. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it's somewhat pie in the sky that we would right. be able to do this, but we could uh, identify and isolate like we did in, in many other small outbreaks that we were able to identify and isolate them and maybe change you know it it's not the only thing you would have to do you'd have to also continue some of the social distancing at home and um with with if you had sick people in your family and um that means then you'd have to social distance with those people who have sick members at home so it's kind of a stair step there's not yeah. a a one thing fix all, mm -hmm. you know, it reminds me of our Ebola uh, spread through the countries of Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone, where we would go from village to village, meet with the leadership, isolate families who had Ebola, stop certain practices, do social isolation, and it was this stair step of, of activities that we both allowed and then, uh, if they were dangerous, didn't allow mm -hmm. over time 
that was able to quell that outbreak. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess I, I oversimplified it, but the, is my general assumption that a, a much more robust availability of testing would really help in this situation? Yes. Okay. yes. So, you know, you have dedicated a lot of your career to protecting the healthcare workers on the front lines, as we've already talked about, and encouraging us to reach out and, and sort of put pressure on our elected officials to look after those people. Um, one last thing, like, on this response variable before we move on to kind of like what we can do going forward is like, what can we individually do ourselves, um, you know, beyond calling our elected officials to look after ourselves and our family? Is it just a matter of being patient and, and socially distancing? Uh, is there anything else that we can do to help kind of flatten the curve, as they say? Well, um, if, you're, if you're talking about how can individuals look after ourselves and our family and how do we flatten the curve of infectivity, you know, the first thing I would tell people to do is go to the CDC website, the Centers for Disease Control website, and they really spell it out what to do. So know how the virus spreads. Take steps to protect yourself, meaning avoid close contact, like you said, with people outside your family. Clean your hands. And the reason why you say 20 seconds of cleaning your hands, which almost nobody right. ever does outside yeah. of this. And that's because we've learned that 15 seconds contact with soap and water um, kills the virus. And that's why we have 20. We want to mm -hmm. give it an extra boost. And so it's the twice happy birthday song yeah. or use your favorite song and take a clip and play it every time you wash your hands. So also cleaning surfaces. And then what are steps to protect others? Stay at home if you're sick. Call your doctor if you really get ill and you may need hospitalization. High, high fever that won't go down or um, cough that won't um, go I away. And better. Yeah. yeah. And then cover your cough and sneezes. I mean, those simple things will, um, will alone um, lessen your chance of infecting someone else or infecting yourself. Mm -hmm. What about for those unfortunate people who have somebody who's sick at home, what should they do to protect themselves? Is it inevitable that they would contract the disease as well? Should they encourage their partner or family member, whoever it is, to maybe sleep in a different bedroom, use a different bathroom? Um, how should people who maybe really stressed looking after a family member who they think is sick, how should they look after that family member and themselves? Well, um, if your family's sick, you need to separate that person in your home. Um, again, I would go to um, the CDC website. Okay. It, it has specifically 
a website that's recommended precautions for household members, intimate partners, and um, others with healthcare, I mean, with um, coronavirus, and it will um, talk to you or, or give you, it won't talk to you, it will give you instructions on what to do mm -hmm. okay. and recommendations. Okay, great. Well, I'll link to that uh, here in this episode so that people can navigate to that website and, and have a read. Uh, I just, now, what, yeah, I just what, so feel for the people who, you know, are at home with somebody who doesn't really fit the demographic of people who are most vulnerable, but, you know, we, we all read the news now. We can all see these um, maybe anomalous examples of people who are seemingly healthy, not elderly, who are succumbing to the disease. Well, I just imagine it would be really, really scary if somebody was at home with even mild symptoms. Luckily, like I said, we're we're healthy after our trip, and today marks 14 days. But um, you know, say if my wife even had a little cough, I would probably be really, really nervous right now. So I'll uh, I'll encourage people to to go to that website, as you mentioned, again. So sort of going forward, Bruce, I just want to talk about the future a little bit before we let you go. 9-11, um, we all remember um, as being kind of like a seminal day in our lives, and it's forever changed our society. What do you think you know, the long-term consequences of this are, you know, 9-11 changed how we travel, uh, changed other things about our culture. What do you think the long-term consequences of this pandemic might be? I think uh, that one, people be will be much more aware of uh, distancing themselves from other people who they may not know or mm -hmm. be aware of that and um we've we've seen some of that happen um in in other outbreaks uh we may be more vigilant in cleaning and cleaning our hands yep um it's interesting i talked to my uh neighbor while i was out walking and i when i saw her i kept six feet away and she had such a positive response. She said, what other time in our lives during the school year can we spend such quality time with our kids and our loved ones mm -hmm. at home for long periods of time to you know, figure things out, get to know them a little better, especially in these periods of stress. So putting a positive spin like that, um, I thought was really a remarkable thing when, you know, most of us are getting antsy and um, figuring out, uh, you know, uh, where in your uh, home or apartment can you uh, have some alone time, which yep. is also important. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so um, I am not sure uh, if uh, more, uh, Online learning will take place. I think yeah. we're we're showing that. Um, I think that uh, my friends who are professors at the university are concerned because they have had no experience or preparation or um, 
teaching on how to conduct classes online. And I think that's going to probably take off more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the positive spin thing because it's something I've been thinking about a lot as well. And I think that there's something that's going to be important for us as we all navigate this together is finding the the positivity in it. And I know for me, like I've had a really stressful last 12 months and the, these last couple of weeks have been pleasant in a certain way of just like embracing feeling unproductive and lazy a little bit and just kind of having a moment to, to really allow myself to rest um, has actually been, I think, positive for me as well. And something that I'm sort of taking away from this um, in a positive way. Um, now, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I wanted to uh, kind of address the anxiety and depression that people may be feeling. Please. I think that's really important. Yeah, please. And, you know, we know that some amount of anxiety is helpful in reminding us to take precautions and protect ourselves but it's also critical not to neglect the mental health consequences of this fight against the pandemic. And um, I read online there were uh, things that people could do and important things to practice in terms of what people are feeling. And the first is to, to practice acceptance of whatever negative emotions we're feeling at the moment and to remember that this anxiety will dissipate over time. It's not, it's, this is going to have a, a, just a certain amount of time and then be over. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really and, glad you mentioned that, Bruce. Thank you so much for, for bringing that up because it is, I think, so important. Um, and I'm sure something that people are really struggling with to one degree or another. And even if it is true that, you know, we have to do a nationwide shutdown for six to 10 weeks, as Bill Gates seems to be convinced that we need to, you know, six to 10 weeks seems like an eternity, you know, on the front end when you're thinking about being isolated. But, you know, when we look back six or 10 weeks, you know, ago, we're like, wow, it seems like it was just yesterday. And, and ultimately, this will be but a blip on the radar, even though it might change a lot about how we interact with one another. And I certainly hope that the social distancing um, doesn't become kind of a cultural norm because I already miss giving people hugs and, and hanging out. But um, that's right. That's yeah, right. We, I guess. So we need, go ahead. There's some other things that uh, I think it's important to mention as well. And that's, uh, I have, I gave you number one and I have four others. And the second one is be compassionate about your own anxiety and the anxiety of others. Mm -hmm. And that, that's hard to do, especially with your spouses and your children after long periods of time being together. Mm -hmm. And the third is um, try to take some short breaks during the day. And even though we're socially isolated and uh, it's important to get outside and they found that just connecting with nature going, I mean, you, this is a sports cast, I believe. And, you know, going on a run uh, has been shown being with nature to, to reduce cortisol levels, the stress hormone in us all, and then practice gratitude at 
also been shown to have positive effects on both your physical and emotional well-being. Pick three things a day that that you're grateful for. And, you know, to me, I'm right now grateful for my computer and Zoom. I'm I'm able to communicate with you and get out this message. And two, I'm grateful that my daughter uh, is still safe at her hospital and that um, you know, we have a house and um, all the things that people are worried about not having. And I'm grateful for that. And the other thing is to do a daily, the last thing is to do a daily check-in. And because you know, labeling what you're feeling on that day and that moment can reduce the intensity of that emotion, even if it feels overwhelming that, you know, you just have to uh, accept those negative emotions, like I said before, but uh, make sure that you allow time for yourself that you know what's going on. Anyway, I thought I'd mention those because I thought they're pretty um, useful. No, it's, it's great. And I'm really, really glad that you did mention it. I mean, being somebody who is you know, at your heart, a doctor and a scientist, you know, there's, there's also room for those more, I guess, like emotional kind of uh, therapies as well, right? It's, it's not all about washing tables and, and surfaces and washing your hands. Um, it is about also like paying attention to your emotional environment and being compassionate to those who are suffering both physically and mentally during this difficult time. So I appreciate those, those words, Bruce. That's really, really nice. So um, speaking about vaccines briefly, why is it that it takes so long to, <laughs> to create a vaccine? And, you know, I, I, from what I understand, there's a difference between vaccines and therapies, right? So vaccines actually will kind of make you immune to a certain degree. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned the flu vaccine earlier. And then therapies are things that would make, it, when you're not immune, make dealing with your, your illness more tolerable, right? So two things. What takes why why do vaccines take so long like why is it going to take 12 to 18 months to get one for this coronavirus as i've read and are there any therapies in development that um you know have promise without without you know <laughs> i guess encouraging people to go buy drugs uh what do you have to say on those two fronts well you know what one thing is why does it take so long to um to get the vaccine is, <clears throat> I think Dr. Fauci on the news and who's uh, one of President Trump's advisors has addressed this is, and especially because he works for the National Institute of Health, um, where they do a lot of the vaccine research, is you wanna make sure that the vaccine works, that it it's, doesn't cause more harm than good, and you allow trials um, first in animals and then in people, and uh, it it just takes that long to develop those type of uh, endpoints 
where we know scientifically that it will do a good job, that it's not worth um, spending people's time and money for things that may not help them, that we're sure that things will help them without harming them. And that, that's the most simple answer um, for that. And uh, you could say again with uh, drugs as well is, you know, you just don't want to put a drug on a market if one, it's not helping fight the virus, two, it's not um, doing the job that we say it's going to do, three, may harm the people taking it or cause other consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with the vaccines, it's, it's just a matter of it. It just takes that long. Even if we're dealing with a crisis situation, there's only a certain amount of acceleration that we can implement in order to make it safe to, you know, actually make and distribute to the population. So, um, yeah, right. in the, in the so, meantime, you know, the, the best we can do is, is uh, resort to what we've all sort of been instructed to do um, with our shelter in place, social distancing, things right. like that. I mean, I did mention, you know, I didn't mention that, um, you know, there's a preclinical animal testing and then there's an animal testing and you want to make sure that vaccines are safe. They trigger the right parts of a body's immunity and they don't cause damage. And also you want to make sure that they pass all of those necessary, necessary regulatory procedures in place to keep people safe and healthy. That's what those are for. Um, I mentioned before that this coronavirus has special spikes on its surface and that there were two enzymes, mm -hmm. the furin and the ACE2. Well, I know that they're looking towards um, either drugs, new drugs, uh, or vaccines that might target these um, enzymes or block them. So. Um, that's why I mentioned it before yeah. when you mentioned drugs and vaccines. Those are the types of things that, that we'll be looking at. How do you block the entry of the virus into the cell? Um, can you block it without damaging those necessary enzymes for our bodies? You know, where, where can you fight the virus without harming people? Mm-hmm. And I, I think I read, I think it was in the Atlantic, that the, um, there's vaccines that are in trial already, and that the first one that had been sent to trial, or ho however it works, was done in, I think, two months or something, which I think doc Dr. Fauci said was by far the fastest that that has ever happened. So I guess that's... Um, you know, a bit of, of positivity. Hopefully that one shows some promise, but that at least, at least initially it's advancing more quickly than any other vaccine has in history, according to Dr. Fauci. So any other kind of final notes of hope and positivity, Bruce, to leave our listeners with, or any other action items? Like I have a friend in New York who, uh, his wife is a 
is a creative type who, you know, is really good with uh, sewing things and creating, you know, fashion products. And she's sewing masks together for the healthcare workers in New York City. Well, Any notes okay. of hope or things for us to do? <laughs> can I address, before I address hope, can yeah. I address the masks? Please. So one of the problems that we're dealing with with sewn masks um, for healthcare workers is I told you before that uh, I was with a group of uh, doctors and epidemiologists and industrial hygienists who dealt with policy about healthcare protection and um, what was would be necessary. And we're trying to make sure people know that home-sewn masks or uh, using fabric and cloth uh, do not offer good protection to healthcare workers. And they may be okay to put on a sick patient to block some of the larger and smaller droplets, but they won't protect healthcare workers who were within that six feet um, area day to day, hour to hour, dealing with those patients. They need a fit tested N95 filtering face piece respirator mm. that does more than just block. It also has electrostatic properties that stop the viruses getting through the respirator itself. And it works more than just diffusion. And um, so we're uh, hoping to put out the word of, so that people will not continue to make masks. But again, going back to where we uh, talked about contacting your congressperson mm -hmm. or um, the governor's office to make sure that your local hospitals receive the, the equipment, uh, equipment that uh, Congress has said they're making available both from industries and other places around the country so that healthcare workers can be fully protected. That's that's really good to know. And so before we get to the hope thing, and then I'll let you go this morning, I appreciate you spending so much time. Just briefly on the subject of masks, it just popped into my head. Is it useful for those of us who are healthy and when we do go out to get our groceries or whatever, is it helpful um, as a precautionary measure to, to wear some sort of blocking mask when we don't have access to those N95s? You know, CDC has put out a policy saying that um, an asymptomatic person who is not um, coughing, uh, that social distancing of the six feet will be adequate without wearing a mask. Uh, as I just mentioned before, a mask usually gets small and large droplets from the person coughing or sneezing uh, so that they're captured in the mask. But masks uh, are not... Not necessary, you don't not think? Not necessary. Okay. No. Good to know. So... Bruce, any final notes of, of hope and positivity as it relates to our current situation and looking ahead? Well, again, I think that um, for your uh, 
viewers and uh, the people listening to this podcast who are athletes and runners, I think that it's important that you, you know, we're not restricted from going out running, uh, I think in any state right now and enjoying the outdoors. We know how running is so important to all of us, to um, both mentally and physically. And I think continuing to do those things, um, you know, runner's world has been discouraging running with other people. Uh, we have, however, thought that maintaining at least a six feet uh, distance when you're running, that it will be, uh, that the risk would be very low mm -hmm. to be negligible if you go and run with your friends, but maintain proper distance. I know that's difficult to do, but, you know, for our own sanity, that's an important part of what we do. Yeah. Well, thanks for, for saying that. And uh, yeah, I'm embarrassed that I didn't ask more running specific questions, um, but that I think will be a valuable answer for a lot of people. And it is so, you know, the, us as runners, you know, a lot of us are both introverted and extroverted in certain ways. You know, we do love our sort of quiet alone time where we're running alone, but there really is nothing better than going out running with your, your closest friends. And so to hear that that is still a possibility, even with a little bit of precaution and social distance is great. So I appreciate your perspective, Bruce. We appreciate your, your 30 years of service looking after people like us. It's only in these moments where I think we can, we really appreciate the work that people like you do. So Thank you for sharing your, your wealth of knowledge with us and thank you for your service and uh, keep us posted if there's anything else that we should do, okay? Well, well thank you. And, and my hat's off to all the healthcare workers who are dealing with this on a day-to-day -day basis. They need to be protected. And I think the best thing we could do is to ensure that they get the equipment that they need. Thanks very much, Dylan. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks again to Dr. Bruce Bernard for sharing his time and experience with us. Hope you guys enjoyed it, even though it's kind of frightening and scary. It's important for us to all be informed, so appreciate Bruce's perspective. I'm going to link to his resume here in the show notes, and I'd encourage you all to check it out because it is really quite impressive, and he has seen and been through pretty much everything you can imagine as it relates to public health over the last 30 years. So the fact that this seems unprecedented, not only in our lifetimes, but also in his lifetime, and his professional career, I think, indicates how serious it is and how much we need to join hands and recognize that we are in this together. I'm also going to link to the CDC guidelines that Bruce mentioned a couple of times in our conversation, so check those out as well. To end things on a positive note, I'm going to pass it off to my great and talented mother-in-law, Deborah Buchanan, 
for the second iteration of Deb's Poetry Corner. And I want you guys to know that I love you and I care about you. And here's Debbie with her poem entitled Time's Velocity. Time's Velocity. The water like glass. We look and see ourselves transparent, then rippled and below our rounded rocks, small fish. Cold eddies form around our hands as we reach in trying to touch the reflected clouds, ourselves a shadow. The flow keeps moving farther and deeper while the smell of water, of time, of glass all mingle, flaring our nostrils. We wonder where have those hours gone, now years, now memories we reach for, so electric, so evanescent. We're recording this poem, I just read, Time's Velocity, on March 27th, the day that the United States topped the world for cases of the coronavirus. And strangely, this poem spoke to me to be read now, even though I wrote it maybe half a year ago when there was no thought of a global pandemic. Um, and why I chose this particular poem and why it felt resonant for now is because that we live in like a double world of time. There's this constant electric vivid time that is day to day when everything seems intense and overwhelming and almost impossible. There's another time, as Henri Bergson wrote, it's pure duration. It's like a transparent forever now time. And I think it's helpful to remember both of those, the evanescence, the electricity, and then the duration of this beautiful velocity that time is. Thanks, Debbie. That was pretty great. Thanks again to you all for listening. I hope you take care of yourselves, and we'll see you back here very soon.